The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Welcome to a new week, actually. You hear that little squeak in my voice? I should not eat a brick of uh, cheddar cheese before, right before the show, but I was just hungry. I had a little bit of soup earlier. I had a bowl of cereal thinking that would tide me over. And then I just knew there was a a brick of extra sharp cheddar cheese just sitting upstairs. So I went and grabbed it. And um, I ate it. <laughs> so anyway, but we'll get through this. Um, welcome. I hope everybody had a great weekend. We had some fun on, on the Twitch channel over the weekend. And uh, I always look forward to that. And um, I try to get all rested up by the time Monday rolls around so that we can get back into our serious mode which is what we'll be doing tonight. In fact, tonight's show, I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Tonight's show, we'll be, uh, we'll be talking with David Ditchfield from England, in fact. He has to get up really early to do this, and we appreciate it. But we're going to be talking about uh, his near-death experience, because not only was the near-death experience itself uh, uh, quite amazing, but the accident that occurred to... Uh, bring it about was unbelievable. It's it's a, wait till you hear this story, and then what happened to him after the near death experience when he came back and started to live his life again. Also very very amazing. He's now an, a motivational speaker as it relates to that experience. He's also an artist. He's a composer, and these are all things that he wasn't doing prior to this near death experience. So. It's going to be a fascinating discussion. I'm looking forward to it. We have an unbelievably dedicated group of people that uh, join us almost every night, whether it's for the live program or it's for the podcast version or even watching the uh, the uh, YouTube video the after you know the, uh, the subsequent days of the program. We get a lot of eyes and ears, but we want more. So if you're uh, part of that group who's listening and watching. Please share the show with people that you believe will appreciate it as well. Your social media friends, whatever it happens to be, you know people that enjoy these particular topics. When you uh, get an opportunity, please share links, please share pages, and let people know this show exists. We need to start spreading the word and getting more people to join us, uh, regardless of the platform. We just want to have more. (laughs) It's all about getting more. Um, and I'm not greedy about it. I just think I just think uh, you know it's great for the guests to get uh, to get more eyes and ears. So all good. But uh, sh- share it if you can. Uh, thank you. The, f- the fuzz is on it. Love to see that. Anyway, let's see what else do we need? Uh, along those lines. Let me just give you a couple quick uh, web addresses. So you know uh, the URL for the the, the YouTube channels. Just uh, YouTube.com/slash JV Johnson. You'll find it pretty easily there. And then of course. The podcast version is available on all major podcast podcast distribution systems. Very easy to find if you search for Beyond Reality Paranormal. That's the name of the podcast version of the show. And I think that's going to do it for our, you know, kind of our getting into a new week uh, monologue. And uh, we'll go to break and then we'll bring our guest in. Again, tonight we're talking with David Ditchfield about his near-death experience. It's quite a story. You're not going to want to miss this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality. I'm still in the middle of this Hermageddon. Uh, funny thing about hair it doesn't stop growing and if you don't get it cut it just keeps getting longer it's really a very very uh difficult situation to be dealing with but we are dealing with it and i'm told that the uh hair cutting uh, salons places will be able to open in a few weeks by then we'll see what happens we'll see how long the hair get maybe by then i'll just keep it and we'll just go with the ponytail look who knows anyway welcome back to the program everyone i promised for in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, having uh, this guest on tonight, David Ditchfield. We've had other people. We've had people on the program who have shared their near-death experiences with us. This one is, is one of the most interesting, not just the experience itself. The aftermath is fascinating. And the uh, events leading up to the near-death experience are just, uh, they'll make you gasp. Uh, they're going to make you uh, gasp uh, and maybe uh, have your jaw drop to the floor a little bit, but it's all, it's a great story, and we're really honored. David uh, is in England. He's up very early to do this for us. David, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's such an honor to have you on. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for the lovely introduction. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. I, I, I truly mean it. Um, I heard your story on another program, and I immediately said, we've got to have David on to tell this story here. And um, I don't, I, I'm not sure where to start, but what I'd really like to do is get a sense of your life prior to, to all this give us just kind of a a summary of what was going on in your life prior to all of this change yeah sure um basically um i'd, I'd left school without any qualifications and so um i decided to to move down to london and try and sort of cut a life out there for myself and of course like any major city it's very hard uh, to make ends meet but i was picking up work mainly sort of um um, laboring work as it were and which is fine um but it was it was tough and i was i, I was down on my luck really you know I was, I was hitting hard times i was i was drinking heavily because basically the local bar was was my office that's where you go and, mm-hmm. and hustle for work you know so right. uh so yeah so so things were not really going too great for me uh, in Do, all you know, I I don't want to I don't want to um, tip our hand too early here because I want to talk about the changes that occurred to you after the near death experience in a little bit. But just to set the stage here, were you a religious person prior to the experience? No, not at all. No, it didn't enter my thought pattern. Um, really, I was just like living by the day. You know, just kind of like if things went wrong in my life, you know, I just look for a quick fix rather than looking to any sort of faith. You know, when I say a quick fix, uh, just you know, thinking, oh, you know, I'll get over this. Uh, let's go and have a have another beer down at the local <laughs> bar. I just go and hang out with the guys. And that was my way of fixing things. Yeah. Um, what about uh, artistic ability? Did you consider yourself an artist or a musician or any of those things prior to this? Well, no. I mean, but basically, I was when I'd moved to London, um, I'd started to teach myself guitar. And when I say guitar, it's like very basic sort of three chord wonder stuff, you know. And, I, right. and uh, I'd, I'd hooked up with a few bands then. I was, you know, we were trying to 
get gigs and trying to get record deals. But obviously, again, that's incredibly hard to to, to get yourself through that that keyhole. Um, but um, yeah, and when I was at school, I enjoyed I enjoyed drawing and 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 what have you. But I never took it any further because again, because of my lack of qualifications, it's very tough in the UK to actually take things further to get into art school you actually need more than just the abilities of just being creative you know you've got to have uh, all the you know, English language is, is one of the first things you've got to get which seems odd to me but and, there you go <laughs> yeah and had, had you had any interaction with or uh, experience with or maybe even uh, new people that had had some kind of near-death experience prior to this no, not at all. I'd never even heard of the phrase near-death experience, to be honest with you, until I'd, had, I'd actually had mine. And spirituality didn't really sort of come in, into my... It was, it was not something that I was really aware of. It's, it's not highly talked of in the UK, in all fairness. So I got no, 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 no idea about it whatsoever. Yeah. And obviously that all changed very, very significantly. Tell us the story about the day that you had the accident which led to all of this for you sure well the day of the accident um i'd I'd been staying at my sister's she could see i was going through um, hard times and she said come and stay with with me and my family they live in 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 cambridge uh, in the countryside so i was hanging out there for a couple of weeks and uh i just met a friend down in london and we were getting on really great you know and so she said, oh, I'll come and stay with you for a couple of days. I said, that would be brilliant. So she did, and we were hanging out together. And um, she had to get back to London, so I took her to the station. And um, uh, we walked onto the platform, and the train pulled in, and the doors opened. So I helped her on with her bags, and we got onto the carriage. And I gave her a hug and a kiss to say goodbye. And then the emergency door uh, indicator started buzzing, and I remember her saying, come on, you've got to get off. I said, yeah, don't worry, I'm cool. <laughs> As I stepped back, um, I was wearing like a, like a, a three-quarter length sheepskin uh, coat that day, and it got trapped in the bottom corner, right-hand corner, just trapped in the doors as they closed. So they slammed to, and there I was trying to pull this coat out. But it just wasn't happening. It just, it just remained completely shoved in there, and I thought, oh, no. I just I looked around and shouted for help, hoping that there would be a guard or somebody working, you know, for the station on the platform. But there wasn't. There was nobody else around, apart from one other guy who was actually seeing off his partner. Um, so I then started banging on the on the glass of the windows and hoping that somebody would run through working for the company, but nobody did. Then there's like these two buttons either side of the doors for open and close, you know. So I was hitting those. They they didn't work. The engine started to rev up, and I thought, oh, you know, this is it. I'm just, I'm I'm going to die. I just didn't think I was going to survive this because I knew that there was, there was no way it was going to pull out. And so I remember looking into the eyes of my friend Anna, who I was seeing off that morning, that afternoon, sorry, and uh, the look of fear in her eyes as she looked back at me. And uh, I thought, this is really it. And the train started pulling out, and um, I lost my footing and was dragged along the platform at great speed. It's amazing how fast these trains pull out. You don't actually think about it until you're in that predicament. And um, 
I lost my footing and then I was dragged along. And then I figured at that point, maybe this is my last chance that the, you know, the body weight of, of myself might just release me, but it didn't. And I got pulled between the space of the platform edge and the train itself. And as it was going at great speed, I got sucked in and down I went. And it was like being sucked into complete hell. Um, I was thrown around like a rag doll. I was tossed from pillar to post. And um, it, it was incredibly painful. And, and uh, I remember being completely conscious about the whole thing. So there was no, you know, there was no anaesthetist wow. there to, <laughs> for yeah. the natural. Yeah, so it was very, very, very frightening. And um, then as I got through, thrown around so so drastically and dramatically, I then suddenly hit the ground uh, in between the tracks as the train continued to sort of go over my head, as it were. Well, not literally over my head, but just, I mean, overhead. I yeah, so you were, you, were, um, you were in between the rails. There's a rail on the right, rail on the left, and the train was right above you at that point? That's it. Yeah, that's wow. exactly it. Yeah, so I uh, was lying down there, and um, I figured, you know, it wasn't over, over yet that part of the actual undercarriage of the of the train itself could just kind of whack me over the back of the head. So I just kept my head right down. And I remember just smelling the oil of the track and and just hearing this train rattling at full speed over me. And um, eventually, it moved on. And then it disappeared off down the track, and uh, and they were completely unaware. Anybody uh, in the in the engine or a conductor or someone you know, one of yeah. them had no idea what had just happened. No, no way, not at all. Yeah, um, I mean, my friend Anna told me afterwards she ran through from the carriage doors to to look through a window to see if I was I'd been released, as, uh, and she saw me go under. She said she saw me roll under. She said, <sighs> and uh, and uh, so she ran through the carriage to try and alert, you know, uh, the, someone to stop the train. And she couldn't fight. She found, eventually bumped into a ticket collector, and then she told him, and he, he was able to alert the driver. And she said it didn't stop till quite some time, way in the middle of the countryside. Wow. So when, yeah. when, when, that was, when, when your coat first got caught in the door and you were face-to-face, basically, with your friend, she recognized... What was happening to you? You obviously must have started, maybe not panic, but certainly knew how dire that situation was. Was she screaming in the car for help or anything? Oh yeah, yeah. She was. She said that she was in a completely a real state. She was just running through the carriage trying to, you know, ask for help. And then, you know, people were frantically trying to find, um, you know, the emergency stop buttons. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's funny because before my accident, the, you know, there was all these ridiculous uh, notices over the door saying, do not pull this lever, do not push that, otherwise you'll get fined. And, you know, <laughs> and she, so she would completely, in a state of shock, she just panicked. And not only that, um, she wasn't that tall to be able to reach oh, some wow. of the actual levers. So... One of the good things to come out of all this um, um, a year later was that they changed um, six laws throughout the whole UK, um, you know, following my accidents because of all things like that that obviously weren't properly put into place. So now it's a lot easier to be able to stop a train if it's something like this. That's a bit of a silver lining, lining, but what a price to pay. Now, I have to ask you, do you think that if the train had stopped uh, while you were 
attached to it, that may have been an even worse situation. Do you? Th- I mean, possibly. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of that. You're probably right. And you know? I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have been able to have stopped anyway in, in time. It's like it's like an ocean liner. Yeah. Isn't it? You know, it yeah. takes, <laughs> takes them a mile to stop or whatever. You know, but. Um, you know, I think really it was just more that she she needed to alert the, and, and stop them. You know, but it's it's a natural instinct, isn't it? You know, your friend's just gone under the train. You don't just sit there and think, well, that's just happened. You know, you you want to stop the train. The train. So, uh, yeah. Um, in fact, she told me afterwards. Uh, you know that. Um, when they did eventually stop, she said there was this stillness as they sat in the middle of the countryside, and she was like, in, obviously, completely distraught. And she turned around to the carriage of commuters and said, um, "Look, I, my friend's just gone under the train, and I'm sure he hasn't survived. Can we say a prayer for him?" And uh, she said that uh, a, a lady stepped forward and said, "Look, I, I'm a Christian. Would you like me to take the prayers?" And she said, "That'd be great." So she said, like, this whole carriage of people who were commuting put down their laptops, their newspapers, and they all prayed. They all prayed for me. And, uh, yeah, so I, I felt that energy, actually, coming yeah. from them. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah. we, we're going to need to revisit that point uh, when we get into the near-death experience part of this discussion. But, we, the, I mean, obviously this was a really good quality coat that you couldn't rip it or you couldn't, you know, you couldn't dislodge it. Uh, if it was sheepskin, it was probably quite strong. Mm. Um, but I imagine you were trying to take it off. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, no, I didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd like to have done is what I should have said. But... Um, because of the quality of it, the the it was, um, the sheepskin was no lining down down the arms, if you like. So mm-hmm. there was no sort of silk or satin lining. You know, it was just like sheer sheepskin that was like attached to my. I was wearing like a, a sweater, a jumper underneath, so uh, I knew that I wouldn't be able to pull it off. In fact, the guy I told you about, he was stood there. He was shouting at me, saying, "Take your coat, take your coat off, mate. Take yeah. your coat off." And yeah. I just thought, "There's no, I, there's no way," because. It's really odd because I, even though the whole thing happened in you know it really in seconds from the moment it took off and I went under, it felt like minutes. I felt like I got time to think things through. I went into um, what is called survival mode, basically where my mind was able to process what was going on, and although I was completely terrified, there was a part of me was actually thinking through right what to do next. And I'd remembered, I'd, I'd seen this news item about two or three, two, three weeks earlier on the TV where a, a small child had been thrown from a burning apartment block. And that child had survived. And they said the reason is because infants um, don't tense up. You know, they're all relaxed and stuff. And so whereas adults, the older you get, the more you tense up. So I thought, right, that's my only chance here is to actually just relax and just like, you know, uh, try and be like a child and like that infant and so you know all those different things I could think through in my head in fact my friend Anna said to me when she came to visit me in hospital she said uh, look this is really weird and I don't want to freak you out she said but when I saw you go under that train you went under with such grace <laughs> and, <laughs> and I laughed and because uh, and I said Do you know what it is and then I told her the story I said it's because I'd relaxed myself and uh, so you know, there's something to be said for for, for that. I mean, I, I, I discovered actually only recently I was watching a TV. In fact, my friend told me, he said, what's this program? There's this, this guy, he's an American guy, and uh, he's, he, he does lots of research into the brain and how it works. And apparently he was talking about that, and he said that sometimes when people are facing death, you know, 
you know that that happens that the mind it doesn't slow down time doesn't slow down but it gives you, you've got this sort of ability to be able to process what is about to happen to you so that's that's quite interesting how long how long was the ex- accident experience from the point where your coat got caught in the door you recognized what was going on to the point you were lying between the tracks and the train had moved on what what's the time frame of that well, according to the rail police, because the, the, the UK rail police did a massive inquiry on it, and they said that it took 13 seconds from the point of the train actually leaving to me going under. Oh, wow. Um, but, but, yeah, I know, but that felt more like, you yeah. know, like it was five minutes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so there you go. But, um, and so, and then obviously the train moved on, so, that, so, so that's going to add about another sort of 10, 10 seconds, I guess, by, by the time it's moved on. But, um, you know, in my mind, it, it, it was a heck of a lot longer. You know, it just felt like a, a huge ordeal. When I was actually pulled in, as I say, when I was thrown, tossed around all over the place, it felt like I, I was in, being thrown into a washing machine on mm. full spin, mm. and it felt like that full spin was, was continuous for, for quite some time, you know. You're lying between the tracks. Train has moved over you and passed you. Uh, were you conscious or were you unconscious at at that point? I was completely conscious. Yeah, I never lost uh, any consciousness at all. And um, so, yeah, I was very, very alert. And so, yeah, were, uh, you must have been in. Were you still in pain? Or I, I, I assume, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I haven't experienced anything like this. Maybe no, your no, brain no, cuts no, it all no. off. Yeah, well, I think it does to a certain extent. It's like, I think it's like it's like if you if if you were in a physical fight. I think if uh, like a boxer, I think the first punch really hurts. But I think once once the match goes on, you know that that you don't feel any more punches, and uh, well, you do, but you don't feel them quite so intensely. And so, yeah, the pain was 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 there, but there was, but it was all mixed in with with a complete sort of um, you know, I mean. I've thought about it quite a bit, and I and and I figured, and and in fact, one of my consultants turned around to me and said, uh, "Do you know what what you went through? I don't think anybody can actually process um, what it's like to experience something like that, and I don't think any scientist would actually be able to answer it either. It's it, the the mind and the body is not used to being thrown into such trauma, you know, and, and it was a lot to deal with. Uh, it's, yeah. it's it's yeah, no. So I mean, it's just kind of like it's 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 hard to just explain it. Like, um, yeah, it was painful and um, and it was frightening. There was lots and lots of mixed emotions and fears and feelings all going on all at once, and it was all very intense in in such a short space of time. What were you thinking? I mean, you're lying there, you're conscious, uh, and what state was your body in? Uh, it was pretty uh, bad. It's pretty uh, ripped up. Um, my 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 coat was now shredded to pieces uh, as the as the train had moved on because I looked and the, the, the um, I looked at the left arm there was nothing left of that coat and uh, and also my my left arm had been cut off from from the the top end so from the elbow down so that had been severed from where um, from so what point of the arm was severed from, from the arm from the elbow from the so elbow from the elbow yeah so, so and that was pretty messy and uh, I could see the inside of my arm and. It's interesting because, yeah, it was horrible and it was frightening. But there was a part of me was was kind of strangely fascinated to be able to see the, the you know that it wasn't the it was. I remember looking and thinking, "Wow, that's the inside of my arm. That's the inside of me." <laughs> and uh, you know, it's um, 
it's it, it's a strange again it's a strange concept that you you think it's being in that position was was horrible but it wasn't as bad as, as the actual as the anticipation i mean i'd say that just facing it all death you know looking facing death in the face uh, was was incredibly um horrific but it's i think it, the anticipation would have been worse if somebody had said to me 10 minutes before right you're going to go under the train i'd be yeah. like what <laughs> but when you do it, I guess, like I say, it's survival. So you, there's a part of you actually braves up to it as well. Well, obviously you did. You you, you were lying there, but you didn't. Um, you didn't uh, stay there. Uh, well, paramedics or, or rescue team came in. What happened? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first thing I did was try to get my cell phone out of my pocket um, to phone for help. But obviously that was that wasn't working anymore. And um, and then, but they arrived really fast actually because I didn't realise. But there was a hospital just just around the corner, so they were there really quick. And they jumped down onto the track and uh, you know started you know, cutting th- through the rest of my clothes to, to you know get some of the injuries and stuff. And then I don't know how they did it, but they got they managed to get me on a stretcher and then they managed to get me up onto the platform, which was a good six feet drop, you know. And um, then they they. You know, wheeled me into an ambulance, and we—I remember getting in the back of the ambulance, and and the doctor turned around to me. He said, "Look, you're in a pretty bad way." And he said, "But there is a hospital around the corner, but there's a much better one that will save you. Can you hang on?" I said, "Yeah, let's go." So I remember the siren going on, and we just kind of like screamed down the highway. Yeah, it was like a rocket taking off, and uh, and uh, there we were, and um, we pulled into the hospital and um, and there was a whole team of people waiting for me there in the emergency department because they'd obviously phoned ahead and to let them know what had happened. And then, you know, there I was and there was doctors frantically running around, you yeah. know, and trying to save me basically at that point because I was losing a lot of blood. Yeah. David, you're in the hospital at this point. You, um, you're having work done on you. You are, um, uh, uh, tell us what's going on around you and what you're being told. And at some point, obviously you are no longer conscious. Let's, let's figure out how this happens. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was still in the uh, emergency department and the, uh, at, at that point, and the, you know, as I say, the doctors were frantically running around trying to save me. And at that point, the, um, the main consultant came in, who was who took care of me, and uh, he was reassuring me. He said, "We're going to save you. Don't worry. Just you know, just hang in there." And he said, "We're going to take you straight into theatre once we're ready and operate on you." And I said, "Okay." And then I remember he came over to me and he said, um, "He said, look, uh, your family are here. Uh, they've arrived." And I went, "Really?" And I thought, "Wow, that seemed really quick." And he said, "Would you like to see any of your family?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, how many can you handle? I said, just send them all through, you know, whoever's here, that's great. Because I really wanted, I felt like I needed them there at that point. And um, so they came through and um, I remember my parents came over and my mother was in tears, you know. And um, she came over, she was holding my hand and she was, and she, and I was going, mom, I'm so sorry. It's always me causing all the dramas in this family because... My my life up until that point had been like that. I was making mis- one mistake after another, you know. And even though the accident wasn't my fault, I just felt like I was to blame for, you know, bringing even more stress to everyone. But she was going, no, don't, don't, please, you know, don't apologise. We're just so, 
you know, you're alive and it's just, I'm just, just so happy you're alive, just don't worry. And then uh, I, I was very keen to see if Anna was amongst everybody because I was obviously she'd just seen it all right. happen and, and I yeah. just wanted to talk to her and check she was okay. And there she was, sat right at the back. And so I said, can I speak to Anna, please? And so she stepped forward and she came over. And I remember she just stood there looking at me and just shaking her head in disbelief. She just kept doing that, you know. And she was going, I can't believe you're alive. And I said, yeah, well, I know. She said, well, she said, because I saw you go under. And she said, but then when we got to the next station, eventually, we all had to get off and the platform was packed, you know. And she said, I heard this announcement over the system saying, um, apologising for delays, but there'd been a fatality at the last station. Oh, so wow. that was confirmation for her that, that I'd gone, you know. Yeah. So, um, so you know, so I just really felt for her. It's, it's it's odd because even though I was what I was going through, all I was concerned about at that point was her and her well-being because I thought she needs, you know. So there was a, there was also this kind of connection between us because we'd been through something so traumatic together. You know, there was this bond that was, that was there, but. It was at that point that I I was lying there that I suddenly left that hospital. I left all the trauma, the pain, all the noise and the, and the, you know and the bright lights and and I went to this beautiful darkened room and uh, what it what it felt like a room and uh, I was lying there and what I realized was that I was now lying on something completely different than the hospital trolley. And I looked, and it was it was like a, a huge piece of slate. It was like a big, like sort of like medieval altar, you know. And I was lying on this huge rock, and you'd think that would be uncomfortable, but on the contrary, it was like a very comfortable place to be lying there. And I I just looked around me to see where I was, and and there were like these orbs that were pulsating all around me, and all these beautiful colours like yellows and oranges and greens. And it calms me just seeing all these pulsating lights. And at that point, I figured straight away that I was dead. I thought, this, I, I've died, and this is where you go to next. And there was no sense of um, uh, fear or regret or panic. or It was just, I, was, I went with it. I was really, you know, I was, I was, I was okay. I was happy with, with the state that I was in because it was such a beautiful, calming place. And then um, I felt there was a presence um, uh, nearby with me. You know, I felt like somebody was there with me. So I, I looked around and I just stood at my feet was this um, androgynous being, like this beautiful being and uh, with like this kind of like white blonde hair and this skin that was like radiating light from within. And uh, this being of light... Um, was it's like a person just stood there wearing like a very contemporary black t-shirt you know nothing too ethereal just something quite that i could connect with and um, you were still on the slab at this point yeah i was still lying on this kind of and this um, being was at your feet slab. okay okay that's right yeah mm -hmm. the being stood at my feet and i remember just looking i couldn't take my eyes off off this beautiful face because it was like a knowing expression. Like I'd known this being all my life and beyond. It was like there was a strong connection between us and there was this reassurance coming, radiating from, from the being. And her eyes or his eyes were just like smiling at me, you know, just as if to say, keep calm, you know, everything's going to be fine. Um, and so 
I did keep calm. I just uh, laid back and uh, and I thought, hang on, the pain's gone. There's no more pain. So I looked down at my body and it was completely, there was no wounds whatsoever, not even a scratch. Everything was fixed, you know, and uh, I realised I was... I wasn't. I was no longer clothed, and I, but I was just covered in like some um, blue sort of satin, sort of silky sheet, which kept me really relaxed, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, then I lay back. I put my head back onto the slate, and I just. And as I did, I looked up, and what I saw above me were like these three grids of light that were kind of closing in on me, and the light that was coming from these grids was just beautiful pure white light and I just couldn't take my my gaze away from that light um because it just felt so calming and uh, and peaceful and it was the intensity of that light I wouldn't be able to look into um normally you know like an electric light or sunlight because it would be too much for the eyes but here it was fine and here it felt completely (laughs) captivating to just keep looking into this light and um then I suddenly felt this energy um, that was coming from the androgynous being had suddenly sort of be, had gone up in, in, in intensity, as it were. And I looked, and there were two more beings either side of me uh, in a female form. Um, one was like sort of brown hair and uh, long brown hair and brown eyes, and uh, and they're wearing a, just a, again a contemporary dress. Would you then, say, would you say they like, were human human looking, uh, or was yeah, was it undefined? Yeah, very, very much so. They were very human. No, okay. very much, yeah, very much human. In, in fact, the the female being to my left, um, she her appearance was um, uh, American Indian, Asian Indian, um, and looked to her, mm. and so. There was a very much I could tell the difference, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, they were very human in form. But um, you could tell that they weren't human as well. You know, there was something different about them. There was just, and there's something about the whole place. It's you, you, it, Being there was as clear as you and I are talking now. And I'm, the place I'm sat, you know, it was, it was real. And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a dream form. It wasn't chaotic. It was very well sort of... Um, it was like ultra real, I guess, you know. And these beings, even though they looked like human, I could tell that they they weren't. Um, so they were hovering their hands over my body, as it were, and, they, and there was this energy um, coming from their hands that was just like, it was almost like they were healing me. Well, they were healing me, but it, it felt more like they were healing my soul as opposed to they were healing my actual physical body. Um, because what the power that was coming from their hands was it, was it felt like love it felt like this really strong unconditional love that was just like coming through and it was just like and, and it was a remarkable feeling a sensation that was just uh it was all the feelings of love i'd ever encountered in my life either through different lovers or through my parents or my brother and sister or what have you you know it was, and it was all there and it was all just condensed and coming through these beings and it was a tremendous feeling yeah so wow that's um i mean you, you you the way you describe it and and again we've talked to other folks who've had near-death experiences and there's this there's this common thread that goes through the stories and and love is a word that comes up all of the time frequently we'll hear words like knowledge and but love's always part of it where's the love coming from do you think do you think the love is 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 
from coming from inside of you and you're and it's being realized or do you think that there's some divine source of the love that is basically embracing you in this moment it's it's definitely the the second that's great what you just said that by the brilliant both analogies but it's the second one really it's it's a, a divine force uh, a divine energy that the where the love is coming from which i was later to discover um i mean I remember the next point I thought to myself, I started thinking about my family because I knew that they were already distraught down in the ha- in the hospital. Sure. So I figured I'd try and I thought I'm going to see how they're doing. And so I kind of, all the feelings of guilt that it was all my fault that were gone, by the way, all that had disappeared. That's an interesting thought as well. For me, I, I was up there, that gone, all, you know, all those, those kind of emotions that are attached to you that don't belong to you just disappear. And I just thought, oh, I'll just check on them. So I looked over the edge of this huge slate rock, <laughs> hoping to see them down in the hospital. But I couldn't see them at all. Um, but what I did see was this remarkable sight. It was just, it was like a, a huge waterfall. But it was a waterfall of stars. And all these oh, wow. stars were just, yeah, I know, wow. it, was, it was remarkable. They were, they were just cascading over the edge, Um and if you think of, like, say, Niagara Falls, you know, it was like that, but, but multiplied by the tenfold, you know. And it, they were just going, and there was, there was shooting stars falling through the middle. And I looked right down, and I, I could see into infinity. It was just disappearing into one galaxy into another. And there was like, as I looked, the further down I looked, the more color I could see. And uh, it was just a remarkable um, sight and I thought wow I'm not in a small darkened room at all I'm actually in the universe itself you know right so so, uh, yeah so I just pulled my head back over again and and again as I say I didn't feel any sense of guilt or or too much worry I just thought oh well I will I'll catch up with them later I'll be seeing them at some point you know I mean there there are two uh, timelines here one is what you're experiencing as you've just experiencing as you've just described to us, and then there's another clock, an earthly clock of a period of time that you were either in surgery or whatever it was, and you were completely unconscious, um, and which allowed your spirit to to have this near death experience. Do we know what the time, like, first of all, how long did it seem like this was going on to you as it was happening? And secondly, do we know what the window was of, of the of the amount of time that you were actually unconscious? Yeah, well, I wasn't actually unconscious when I had the near-death experience. I, wasn't, I hadn't gone into theatre at that point. I was still oh, actually okay. in the emergency department, so, which is interesting because that means I can give you a, a rough time limit, and it, was, it would have been minutes that that it you know that 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 it went on for but um you know in my the near death experience itself it was like time to again like I was talking about it before like you know it, it it's a different realm right time doesn't come into it and and it felt like an eternity uh, and so I couldn't turn around and say yeah it felt like I was there for 10 minutes or whatever or an hour it just it just really didn't come into it and it didn't even you don't even think about time. You're just there and you're just, you're just experiencing everything that's going on in such a relaxed manner that you just forget about all things like that. So it's hard to, you know, all I can say, it was, it was more like an eternity rather than minutes what, than it would have been in real terms. Yeah, what, came, what came next for you, though? Uh, did, were you then, I mean, at some point you recognized you were being pulled back to your body or did that come later? That came just later, yeah. Um, what came next was, was the biggest 
um, part of it all and the biggest realization for me because there was a lot of the knowledge that was coming through was that it was all through telepathy and, 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 and learning as I went along. And I remember turning over at that point, realizing that I would see my, my family later as I figured. And, um, as I turned over, I suddenly saw this remarkable vision. Well, not vision. It was, it was, it was, um, a, a sighting right at my, at, ahead of me was this huge tunnel of white light that was slowly drawing in towards me. And this tunnel of white light was surrounded by flames, very dramatic, beautiful flames that were just rotating around and circling. And even though they were very powerful flames, uh, they didn't they didn't at all frighten me or alarm me. And I felt very calmed by all this. And the energy that was just so intense, and I knew straight away, I just said to myself, this is this is the source of all creation. This is God, you know. This is not uh, the vision of God that we're all brought up to believe, you know, as we see on the ceiling of the Vatican, you know, right. the guy with the beard. Right. This, this is this is it, you know. This is this is God. You're convinced that was God. Uh, I was totally convinced. Yeah, I knew it was, I, I, and I still do. And um, and then the interesting thing is, you were talking about earlier about the whether you thought that. You know the healing that was coming through was it, and there you go. That's that's that was the main source of energy. That source of love was coming from there, and and it was coming through these beings. They were like basically transmitting that love that was coming from this divine light. Wow. <laughs> yeah. As you were moving towards the light and and the flame and God. Uh, were the beings mm. traveling with you, the three that were I, with you? I early? wasn't, you know, at, at, at that point, I wasn't really, um, you know, it was just, I was just so transferred, you know, I was fixed on, on, onto this light, and they sure. hadn't dispersed as such, would have been with me. They were still there, sort of uh, healing me. Um, but what I do remember at that point was I just kind of, I laid my head back, and I remember I was, I was kind of like filled with so much happiness and joy. And uh, uh, I put my head back, and at that point, that's when I suddenly came crashing back down to earth. You know, and I was back in the hospital, and uh, and uh, you know, back into my body, and all the pain came mm. rushing back immediately. And you know, all the the anxiety that was going on around me, the noise, you know, the lights. It was all very. It was like overkill. <laughs> Before you came crashing back to your body, uh, and I think you mentioned this when you first started the story, you, you assumed you were dying. You assumed this was death. Um, mm. But obviously, it didn't bother you. You were actually in, oh. a very, in a very loving place, a very welcoming place. And uh, if that had been death at the time, if it was permanent or whatever death is, uh, it doesn't sound like it would have bothered you. Not in any sense whatsoever, you know, I was in full acceptance of it. And in all fairness, I actually felt probably the, the happiest I'd felt yeah. for, for most of my life because my my life up until that point had been quite traumatic. It, it just hadn't worked out for me. I was, you know, I was just, it was constantly going wrong. And I was filled with a lot of guilt and, and remorse about the way my life had gone. And all those feelings had dispersed. So I just felt great. You know, I was, I was really happy where and, I was. And when you came crashing back into your body, the pain came back, but, you, but your your awareness came back. Were you aware mm. enough to, A, recognize what had just happened, but secondly, to, to uh, be maybe even be a little saddened that you had come back? I was totally aware of what had just happened, and uh, I didn't feel sad that I'd come back funny enough. Mm. Um, 
I, because I was just so charged with it that I just felt, wow, I've just got to tell the world what's, what's just happened and why, why have they sent it back? And I just wanted to tell everybody about it, you know. In fact, they were just about to wheel me into theatre and then um, my family just came over to say goodbye and then Anna came over and I said, Anna, I've got something, that, something's just happened. It's really important. I've got to tell you about this. And she just put her hand over my mouth and she said, tell me later, you know, not now. <laughs> but I was, it was like, no, I've got to tell you, this is really amazing, you know. And so that's how charged I was for, throughout. And when I came through after the eight-hour operation that they, they, they did on me, um, I remember I was in a lot of pain and I was just suddenly the whole you know, the shock of what had just happened, the actual physical, you know, and mental shock of the accident had kicked in. But I was still charged with all this, wow, you know, what about that? What, you know, that's just, this. It, it had changed my life at that point, literally. So, yeah, there was no real sadness about coming back. Give us give us a sense of um, of what was going on physically here. Your arm was um, basically severed, but did were they able to save it? Yeah. Um, that's interesting, actually, because just as they were weaning me in, I turned around to the consultant who'd been really caring, and I just said, look, I said, will you, will you, can I ask you, will you save my arm? Will you please save my arm? And he said, we'll do what we can. And uh, he stuck to his word because he just started working at the hospital. He was a young doctor, you know, and uh, bless him, you know, he, he was determined. And uh, it took, like, three major operations, three eight-hour operations to save it, you know. But it kind of, like... He, he was enjoying, you know, the fact that I wanted to do right. this, that I wanted to work at it, you know. So they did, yes. Yeah, so they managed to save it. I mean, it's not, it doesn't function completely as it, as it was, but I've still got it. I mean, there was a lot of hard work <laughs> to, sure. to get things moving again, you know, but it can be done. Sure. Um, and, and, and if you don't mind me asking, answer what you want to answer, but don't if you don't. Um, but were there any other long-term physical effects from the accident? Well... Yeah, it's it, it's it's just all. I mean, that was the main major one to deal with. But I mean, it just knocked everything out of sync. I mean, I'm just not the same person that I was. You know, I can walk, and I can thankfully I can. You know, I'm not a wheelchair bound. Bless people who are, but I'm just I'm able to get around. I'm fine, but I'm just not. I haven't got that same spring in my step that I once had. So it it knocks it out of you, and it knocks every single part of your body um, into. You know, I've I've, I've been. I had to do a lot of uh, uh, physio to, to get everything moving again and, and stuff. So, But also mentally, it knocks a lot out of you. I had to um, eventually have some therapy to sort of deal with, with that, deal with the trauma of what had happened. Um, you know, because for a while I couldn't drive anymore and I felt, well, the only way I can get around is by a train. And I felt trapped. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, you know, so it was a real sort of catch twenty two. So I had a lot of therapy to help me to try and deal with getting out and you know not being scared of you know you you you're fearful of, of of the world. It's just going too fast and too furious. And so there was a lot of therapy to get me to do, be able to deal with that again. So and yeah. I I, don't, I think I failed to ask, and maybe you mentioned it, uh, but when did all this occur? How many years ago? Yeah, it was 2006 that it was. 2006, yeah. okay. Yeah, February, yeah. Tonight we're talking, however, with David Ditchfield about his near-death experience, his accident that led to it, what happened during the near-death experience itself, and now we're going to get into what has happened since because it's a remarkable transformation in many ways. His book outlines the entire journey. It's called Shine On. 
the remarkable story of how I fell under a moving train, journeyed to the afterlife, and the astonishing proof I brought back with me. David, in that title, you say the astonishing proof I brought back with me. Let's talk about some of that proof. What changed? Mm, What happened when you came back? And things started to calm down, and you started to recognize not everything was the same. Well, um, as I say before, I'd never heard of near-death experiences at all. So I figured I was the only person that this had actually happened to at that point. So I felt, well, what is my mission? I've got to do something here. You know, I've got to tell the whole world about that the fact that death is nothing to fear, you know, that there's a beautiful place that awaits us all. And um, and I also wanted to try and record it in some way, you know. So I remember my sister coming in to see me the very next night, and I, I, they'd given me my own room in the hospital, so it was nice that I'd got that space to myself. And we were chatting, and I remember it had been very quiet and calm. And just as she was leaving, she said, look, is there anything I can get you? Um, and when I come see you tomorrow, I said, yeah. Can you get me a small sketch pad and a pencil? because I wanted to try and record this and paint it. I got it in my mind that I was going to have to paint this. That was the best way to show people. And, you know, I'd never done anything like this before in my life. But yeah, was, you weren't I, a painter well, prior to this, right? No, not at all. Not in, in no way whatsoever. You know, I'd, um, you know, painted a few walls and, and floorboards and, <laughs> and stuff. But, um, yeah, but uh, basically I just got it in my head. I thought I've got to do a huge canvas i wanted to do something like a big michelangelo style you know renaissance painting to show everybody what i'd seen because it was so huge and so powerful i thought that's the only way i'm going to be able to do it is on a big piece of canvas so uh so she bought that she said yeah okay i'll bring your sketch pad in so she did and the nurses managed to prop me up because i couldn't i could hardly move at all in fact i couldn't move at that point and they propped me up and they and I did this very faint sketch in this little pad, and which I've still got. You can barely see it, but it was this the outline sketches to my very first painting that I did. And um, so that was, yeah. So I, I couldn't wait to sort of get myself fit and strong enough to be able to start on this painting. And um, once I was physically well enough, I remember my aunt had come over from Canada to visit, and uh, I was telling her all about it. So she went out and bought me. She bought me a canvas, and it was quite a big one, which was great. And so I remember having it leaning against the wall at my sister's house where, where I was recuperating. And I kept looking at it, and I was, I was apprehensive to start it because I thought, where do I start, you know? And also I didn't want to mess this up. You know, I wanted to tell the world in the best possible way what I'd seen and what I'd experienced. How vivid were those visions of the experience you had had very, you know, recent to that, this near-death experience of the beings, all that, was it really vivid in your mind at that point still? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, it was incredible and, and still is. I mean, you know, I was scared that I was going to lose that vision because it's like that's the difference between this and, and dream state. Like, for example, if you have a very powerful dream, it, that its dreams are more chaotic and, and bizarre and, and they start to diminish with time. Whereas with the near-death experience, it's not a dream. And so it's, it's, it stays with me as vivid today as it was then. So there was no real fear for me. I didn't need that little sketch pad and pencil at all, you know, but that's, that's my human mind taking over saying, I'm, I'm going to forget all this, but I didn't do it again. And so once I did actually start painting it, um, 
I could remember exactly how everything looked, and so I was able to start putting it onto this canvas. So, um, yeah, was I, your... was, I was incredible. Uh, uh, sorry, it's okay. Uh, uh, I'm just wondering if you feel now or felt then that maybe your hand was being uh, guided by whether it was God uh, or those beings. You know, w- w- as you're painting and never had painted before, and turning out these really incredible pieces of art uh, that that uh, tell the story of your experience. Do you think you were being guided in some way? I was. I was most certainly being guided. Um, once I started painting, um, it all came started coming together really quick and really well, and I was really shocked. You know, I was, as I say, I was apprehensive, and but once I started putting paint onto that canvas, it was like, wow. I'd, I'd finish at the end of each day, and I'd look at it, and I'd think, that's remarkable. You know, I, that, that's not me. I can't have done all that. And I started to realise that, that I was actually what I call channeling um, through not right. through my hands, but through my whole being, you know, right. and that was that was helping me to sort of create. And it's almost like I was being given like a crash course lesson of, of the highest quality of how to paint, you know, how to create a fine art, you know, painting and uh, how to use color, you know, and how to use color to bring out tones and skin and all different things like that. So, yeah. It, it, it was amazing, and and I still do. Whatever I do now, uh, it, I'm still aware that I'm channeling through from the other side. Because especially at the beginning as well, I, I, I felt like there was a part of me that was still connected to this other place I'd been. I, it's not like I'd just been sent back and that was it. There was there was a connection between me and that place. And so I felt that, you know, I was being helped. After you had completed maybe the first painting or, um, you know, as you completed these paintings, were you able to look at them and say, that's exactly what I wanted to or, to portray? I mean, was it was it that rewarding for you? Yeah, totally. You know, the, I felt completely happy with, with each one that I was painting because it was stuff was appearing on the canvas that um, that I didn't even realize. Wow. Was starting, you know, there was it was just especially when I started painting the um, the tunnel of light and the flames that were, were all appearing around. You know, there was um, each one that I did, and I started seeing things that I thought, where did that come from? How come it was almost like a happy accident, if you like, would happen on the painting? And then, and then I'd look at it, and um, it was interesting because quite recently, uh, a friend of mine got in touch with me, and she said. Uh, have you seen the the latest um, images from the the Hubble, you know, sort of um, telescope that have been photographing way beyond galaxies? And I was going, no. She said they're just like your paintings. I was going, wow, let's have a look. So I looked, and she was right. So it was incredible. There was like these, they looked like like the flames that I talked about that were, you know, that were that surrounding the, um, the actual tunnel of light that looked like my painting. It was just remarkable. So um, yeah. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, if people go to your website, um, they can see some of these works of art that you have created, yeah. right? I mean, you do have them on the website. Yes, absolutely, yeah. If you go on there, it's all on there. You've know, got my paintings on there. Also, on, on my Instagram page as well, I tend to rotate my paintings around on there. So, so yeah, but if you go to the website, that everything's on there. You know, so. And it wasn't just paintings, David, right? I mean, you you've realized yeah. suddenly that you had the ability to compose uh, pieces of music. In fact, I think even complete symphonies, which is no small feat or small <laughs> task. Absolutely, <laughs> that's that was the next thing that happened. Um, I was, um, it was interesting because I, I I'd started, I I wanted to 
find this little spiritualist church um, that was in the town uh, where I was staying um, because, um, well, basically, I, I'd been told, I'd, oh, I'd been, I'd just be, two months prior to my accident, I'd bumped into some people on the training when I was coming up to visit my sister's family and they said they were going to see this medium and they, and, uh, they said, why don't you come along? And I, obviously at that point in my life, I wasn't interested. But the, the lady who was sat opposite, she was quite insistent on it. She said, this woman is brilliant and nobody knows of her. Come along. So she gave me this flyer and I put it in my pocket. Forgot all about it. But for some reason I went that night and I went along. And while I was sat in this packed little spiritualist church, everyone was like getting getting messages from their loved ones who passed on. I wasn't looking for any message at all, but I got one. And she turned around to me, the medium. She said, gentleman in the blue sweater, your life is about to change. Be ready for it. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah, I know. And I said, oh, I was thinking, what, well, it's going to be the lottery winning or yeah, right. the relationship <laughs> I was after, you know. And uh, I said, in what way? She said, and she stopped. And she was like talking to them in, in, her, in her mind. And she said, they're not telling me. They're just saying it's going to be big. Be ready for it. And you will be protected. So I know I knew then that's what that's what it was all about. So I needed to find this place to try and track down this medium to, to talk to her, you know. Yeah. So when I walked, I, I eventually found it, and um, I went to one of their meetings. And when I was there, you know, at the end of the you know, the church meeting, they turned around to me and we had coffee and that, and they said, "You look pretty in a bad way, and we know all about you. We saw you on the news. You know, you're the guy who went under the train, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "We do spiritual healing here." I said, fantastic. So I started having spiritual healing. And through those healing sessions, um, the healers are like mediums, some of them, and they would give you, like, messages themselves, only small ones. They'd just say, oh, I was picking up, you know, usually things like, you, you, you know, there's a lot of, if you had a stressful week and blah, 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 and they're telling you to calm down. And But what they kept saying to me was, um, one of them was saying, oh, I'm seeing, why am I seeing a violin placed across your chest? chest? And I said, I've no idea. And then, one of them, then a few of them kept saying, "You're going to write some music." I was going, "Okay," and they said, "You're going to write some music about your experience." So I figured at that point it would be a three-minute song because that's what, as I say, I'd played in a few sort of right. punk rock and bands. So I went home, couldn't play the guitar anymore because um, my arm was still bashed up. So I pulled this old synthesizer out of the cupboard, started playing around on that, and this chord progression came together. But I thought this is not actually going to be a three-minute punk song this sounds like it was should be played by an orchestra so um i kept developing it up and i'd become friends with a a, a cello player in the local orchestra and um uh, she said i was, had coffee with her one day and she said how's it going and i told her what i was up to and i said yeah i'm writing this new piece of music i said it sounds like it should be played for orchestra rather than played by a band and she said oh maybe we'll do it one day and I thought, right, I'm going to hold it to that. And so I just worked on it. And then my brother turned around to me. He lived down in London. And he said, look, I've got this um, package uh, that you can have like an app that you can attach to your laptop. And uh, when you play your synthesizer, the notes that you play, that it can transpose it into notation. Right. And so... That's exactly what I did, and then I printed off all the parts. I started hearing different sounds, different instruments, you know, like the flutes in my head and horns. And then I started to understand what those different horns were. They were French horns and piccolos and what have you. 
So, yeah, so I got it all scored up and then I contacted my friend. I said, oh, do you remember that day when we had that coffee? She said, oh, yeah. I said, well, look, I've, I've actually got this first movement together for a piece. Would you look at it? She said, yeah. So she met me with the one of the leaders of the orchestra and they looked at it together and they said, okay, we'll do it. So they offered to perform it. And uh, <laughs> that was in- remarkable because they said, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, there I was. But again... I was being channeled while all all this stuff was coming together. All the ideas that were coming, I was were coming for. By then, I was like, I knew that what channeling was, so I went along with it. And uh, and before I knew, it, I was turning up to a rehearsal, and uh, that was quite an amazing experience because part of me was very apprehensive because you know walking into um, well into a, a rehearsal you know orchestras are very like sort of highly educated middle class sort of people and <laughs> i was i was a working class guy you know uh, with no knowledge of music so i was you know yeah i was fearful but i was also very felt that i got this energy that was giving me strength as well so i walked into the room and then the conductor turned around and said oh the composer's here i was going composer you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he said uh, david would you like to say a few words about your piece and so i i turned around and said well um no that's fine you guys just go ahead he said no come on so i started talking about it and of course it was about my near-death experience and once i started telling the story I got this, again, this energy was coming through and I was being protected. I was given the power to let my voice come out and tell all these people that I was once fearful of. And they all listened and they were all asking questions and it was great. And then I'll never forget the moment that the, the, the strings came in, the opening strings, and it was like, wow, you know, it was like, it, it took me back to that first moment in my apartment when I was playing this little synthesizer. And there it was in in full, like, three-dimensional sound. It was just incredible. You know, it's a beautiful experience to, to hear something that you've had inside you just come out from an orchestra. And, uh, yeah. It is and, amazing. Um, yeah. It is amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, I, want to, I just want to take you back to something here for a second because I mentioned before that we're going to have to come back to it. When the people on the, on the train, after the train stopped and your friend Anna thought that, you know, knew that you had gone into the train and probably assumed the worst. And she asked everybody to pray, and they did. Do you think that had anything to do with what ultimately happened to you? What, you mean the actual near-death experience? I'm, so. I, do, do the people, that group of people praying for you mm. and to you and about you at that moment, do you think that that maybe opened some doors that that led you uh, to having that experience? Do you think it had anything to do with it? I I don't actually feel that. What I felt was I actually felt the energy coming from them, and because I needed it, uh, as I was literally losing uh-huh. so much blood and I was in a lot of trauma and pain. So I think that the prayers that they were sending me were helping me, giving me strength to hang on in that ambulance ride, and and because that would have been the point that they were all praying. I see. So. Um, so it, I've, because I also know that my, I remember my parents coming in uh, one day when I was in hospital and they said, I said, do you know what? There's about three or four churches in the surrounding uh, sort of neighborhoods that are all praying for you because you've been on the news nearly every day. And I said, I can feel that energy. I can feel those prayers. And I could. So I firmly believe in the power of prayer. And, and the power of prayer was just literally 
giving me that strength to be able to see me through the you know the hard times of of what I've just been through. So I don't actually feel like it was actually you know helping me to to experience what I did in the NDE itself, but I think it helped me greatly sort of in my recovery. Since you had the near-death experience, do you find that you have um, um, a bit of a strengthened connection to other people who have had near-death experiences? Have you noticed anything different in that sense? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, it's especially quite recently I've been talking to various other people, especially in the U.S. as well, actually, who have had near-death experiences themselves uh, through doing various interviews and stuff. Um, and... Uh, it's great, you know, because we'll be chatting on air like you and I are chatting now. And then once we switch off, we both have a little natter afterwards. And we're, we're all going, did you feel this when you were in the hospital? There's all these different things, even though our near-death experiences were slightly different, you know, and the stories are all different. But there's a, there's a thread of similarity throughout. And there's lots of common things that we both agree on, that we both felt and still feel now. So this this connection uh, is great. It's it's almost like I don't know if you're familiar with the with the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's very much like that, you know, where where at the beginning of the film, there's like all these different people who are like building these mud piles. They're, they're creating like this right. mountain and stuff like that, and they don't right. know why. And so there's this, and then when they when they meet at the end, you know, they both it's almost like that same same thing where they're saying, yeah, I was creating that in my kitchen as well. <laughs> so there's there's like this kind of thread of thought that we're all connected, and 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 it's like you're never looking for confirmation out of out of all this, but it's 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 a feeling of affirmation. So you, it's always lovely to just connect with other people and. Uh, chat about it so yeah i felt that and still feel it too so 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 as as this awakening was happening to you recognizing you now had some artistic ability that you didn't have before you felt you were being guided uh to paint you were being guided to write some music to help express this experience that you had had is that Mm. is is writing the book another uh finger in that hand if you will is it another expression of that guidance you were receiving from wherever that was Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's something that I would like to have done earlier, but I couldn't do because of um, my, I'm dyslexic. And uh, so I've, but so it's taken some time to come. Well, I say it's taken some time. It, it, I hadn't. It wasn't something that I was thinking. I've got to get this book out. But I, it it just it fell into place. So many things just kind of fall into place because they're meant to come out when they come out. So I think the music and the paintings were meant to come together first uh, to support the book, which is now the next stage of the journey. And so it's not. You know, obviously, I'm excited about the book coming out, but it's been really exciting um, promoting it as well, like talking to people like yourself and and being able to sort of spread the word through word of mouth now. Me talking about it more to people and uh, and and having the music and the, and the art there to for people to be able to look at afterwards has been great. You know, I've done interviews and then people get back to me the next day and say, oh, "I heard your interview." Then I went to your website. And I enjoyed the music and the paintings, and it gave it even more of a of a dimension of what you were talking about. So they're all different; they're just different mediums and different dimensions to just for me to, to be able to talk about this and and to express to people that that, that there's nothing to fear of, of death itself. You know, uh, that was going to be my next question. I've got there are three things, and I'm going to ask them individually, uh, and, and maybe get some short answers to this. But how did the experience change your attitude toward religion? 
Oh, right, yeah. Well, that was just like uh, instantly uh, from that moment when I saw that huge tunnel of white light, then then my faith completely changed. And, I, and uh, you know, I, I believe in, in God and I believe in, in a creator. And, uh, and yeah, my, my, my faith is, is very... It's very powerful, and uh, you know, keep, keeps me keeps me going. And um, yeah, and I and Christ as well. That that came later. I was uh, when I was going to. I continued to have um, spiritual healing. Well, I still do to this day, actually. And um, I remember having early on at some point when I was having one of my spiritual healing sessions that I used to see a lot of you know images while I was being healed of light coming in still from above, and then there was one healing session that I literally saw an image of Christ while I was being healed. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, it was really, and he was, he just looked really, he looked great. He just looked really healthy and powerful and beautiful and, and just kind of floating above me. So I came, you know, that the, the session had finished or what have you. And then one of the mediums who was healing me had turned around to me and said, um, said, Oh, do you know what? Christ was stood right next to you when I was. I saw him when I was healing you. I was going, no way. I was going, I just saw him as well. In my, <laughs> so I thought, right, this is it. I've got to go. And it hadn't entered my head that Christ has, had existed until that point because I didn't suddenly turn to the Bible or anything. Yes, I mean, it wasn't like I'd become any other, I hadn't become Christian or Muslim or any other faith. It was just that I believed in God. That's. But then I thought, no, now I believe in Christ because he was there and he was obviously there at the time and I needed him to while I was healing. So I, I actually painted him. So that's one of the paintings that if people are interested in looking and you'll see that's exactly what I saw, that vision of him floating above me. Yeah. What about death? How has this changed your attitude toward death? Well, it's it's the way I see death is is um, you know yeah okay the the body dies but the, you know the soul continues on it's the next stage of the journey you know it's not like a light switch that just goes off like that and uh, there's nothing to fear at all I mean I don't fear it I don't fear death now at all it's uh, I just I just know that um, it, it's the next stage of the journey and it's quite a beautiful stage of the journey as well. And those those might be the two obvious ones, but this might be the most important one. How has that experience changed your attitude toward life? Well, um, interestingly enough, that that I I actually look at life as being heaven on earth. That the earth itself is a really beautiful place, and I didn't realize just how beautiful it was. Um, in fact, it was funny because after my NDE, I, was, I became fascinated with watching documentaries and all about astronauts. You know, because they're going out to the space and hanging out in the universe. I wanted to see what their take on it was. You know, right. and I found that quite a few astronauts. It, they're scientists, they're big time scientists, but they were like a few of them were turning around saying when they came back that they they gained faith. You know, they that it changed their whole outlook mm-hmm. on, on more not mortality, but they a few of them actually said when they, when they came back to Earth, they said it was like as you come back from the moon, which is like this big dusty white sort of um, you know planet or whatever, you know, and that you come back to Earth and it's and all these colours and all these beauties that. that Heaven, it's like heaven on earth, you know, as you come back. I thought, exactly, I agree with you, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel that life is, is, is um, you know, it, it's, we've got to reassess how, well, we've been given the opportunity right now to, to, to reevaluate life and, and, and the planet all around us. Everyone's talking about here anyway, about how, how they're enjoying listening to birdsong and, they, and, and nature's 
completely starting to live on alongside us a lot more now because the whole world has suddenly had to slow down, you know? So, yeah. If you had an opportunity and you may have, you probably have actually had an opportunity to sit with someone who is uh, close to death or dying, uh, what words would you give them? I'd say don't, you know, don't, um, don't be scared, but don't have no fear and just, just go with it. You know, I'm not saying let go and, you know, don't hang on to life, but just, just don't be fearful of it. There's nothing to fear. And, um, and you know, you know what I actually did, a, a thing here, actually, I was co- contacted by a newspaper called the Guardian, which is kind of quite a big paper in the UK. And, and, uh, it was a, one of the journalists actually has got a very big fear of death, and uh, so she wanted to make this film all about it. And so I was one of the people that, that she interviewed, and she was—I could see she was clearly terrified of death to the point that she couldn't sleep at night sometimes thinking about it. So, you know, I, I just showed all my paintings and talked about my music and stuff, and uh, and I explained the whole thing that you know that it, it it's. Um, you know, it's, you know, my mother passed away uh, last last summer. And I mean, you know, it, it really helped me to know that um, she'd gone on to a beautiful place and that she was being released and she got Alzheimer's. And so she was free of that and, and she was in a lovely place. So it's, it's, it's not only good to be able to help people overcome fear of death, but also when they've just lost their loved ones to be able to turn around and say, look, don't worry, you know, your, your yeah. father or mother is in a good place. It's not the end. You haven't lost them forever. Uh, you know, they're probably still around you now. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Um, okay, so the book is called Shine On, and it's uh, available June 26th, although it is available for pre-order now. Let everybody know where the website is. You said you have an Instagram. Let people know where they can follow you there and anything else you want uh, folks to know about. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to listen to the music as well, um, just go to the website as well, and you'll find the links to my SoundCloud page, and so you can you can stream that for free, and so you can hear the, the that very first symphony that I talked about, um, which is called the Divine Light, and then that piece of music talks says it all. Really, it talks about the whole journey of the of the near death experience that I had. Um, it's yeah, yeah. So, it's been a fascinating discussion, David. Um, best of luck with Thank the book. You. I can tell it's important for you to get this message out and have people understand your experience and get some inspiration from it. Um, I think that's a lot of what you're after. And, and uh, based on what you've told us here, I can see why that's important to you. Exactly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, I, one thing I can actually add as well, but thinking about it, that um, in August, um, I'm going to be, I've been invited to take part. This is a US based thing, and it's, but it's a worldwide um, annual summit. So it's the third um, uh, near death experience uh, summit, which takes part uh, the 1st and the 2nd of August. So if, if people want to try and look that up uh, online, uh, there's some great speakers, other people who have had NDEs themselves, and um, experts in this field so please have a look at that if you're interested in looking into near-death experiences terrific david thank you so much for getting up getting up early and and uh (laughs) braving the early morning hours to be with us it's much much appreciated thank you so much thank you very much for having me 
All right, once again, just in case you didn't get it, the website is shineonthestory.com, and David Ditchfield was our guest. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.